Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbound, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. poured out of the windows of the upper floors to meet the flames looking out of the windows to the basement studio, producing clouds of steam that drifted off and mingled with the clouds of the night sky. The moon above was being mothered like an egg by an enormous vulture. Harriet shuddered, then caught herself. She had to know. I... I want to catch him painting, she said, with that thing. Hey there, this is Sam Schreiber. I'm one of the co-editors and co-producers of The Kaleidocast. I was the story runner for season two, but in this episode, I'd like to talk about the novella we ran to close out season one, back when this all started. As you can probably tell from the title of this off-season episode, uh, that novella is The Insipid Profession of Jonathan Hornbaum by none other than Jonathan Lethem. When I first reached out to Jonathan, I was actually asking about an entirely different story from his collection, uh, The Wall of the Sky, Wall of the Eye. Uh, It was called Light and the Sufferer, and I thought it was a perfect fit for the Kaleidocast. It was a New York story with aliens, drug addicts, and broken friendships, and I have to admit, I've, I've read that collection a lot, and I guess I sort of wanted a piece of it. Uh, unfortunately, so did a lot of other people. Uh, so the film rights for Light and the Sufferer had been optioned, which basically meant uh, podcasting it was a no-go, And I have to admit, I'm really glad that they were, because if they hadn't been, uh, we wouldn't have gotten to do The Insipid Profession. Uh, So, uh, short story long, uh, here's how it happened. Jonathan gives me a list of stories he's published that sort of fit the Kaleidocast's uh, New York speculative weird vibe, and The Insipid Profession jumps out at me, and I tell him so, and he writes back saying he was afraid I was going to, to choose that one because A, it's out of print, B, he doesn't have a copy, and uh, C, no, he really doesn't have a copy at all. And that makes sense because it was published 10 years earlier, which makes it uh, uh, 13, 14 years old now. Uh, But as luck would have it, this isn't my first rodeo. I used to work as a clerk at a used bookstore in Oberlin, Ohio, and part of the job was uh, tracking down rare books, including limited editions like Subterranean Press's uh, How We Got Insipid, which is where you can find the insipid profession of Jonathan Hornbaum. 
Uh, I found a copy online in an independent bookstore in Newfoundland, of all places. Anyway. So, I'd like to talk a bit about the other people who were involved in this production. Uh, Cam Roberson, Bradley Parks, and uh, Tanya Ireland-McLean, obviously. But I feel as though the actors and the musician-composer deserve a lot of credit here. Uh, I'm going to start with something that Wilson Fowley, who played the character Lop Lop, was good enough to record for us. Uh, Here's Wilson. About the insipid profession of Jonathan Hornbaum. I've always loved voicing and playing interesting characters, particularly ones that are different from me. So the opportunity to play Lop Lop was something I really enjoyed because he's such an amalgam of so many things that I am not. A bird, first of all, and one who is German at that. Not to mention that he's also a ghost of sorts, and not just any ghost, but the spiritual embodiment of Max Ernst. Plus, the fact that his appearance is both the climax and the resolution of the story made it important to get him right and depict him as the father with regrets but still passing judgment, even though, or maybe even because, his son is a grown man now. That part hits a little close to home, unfortunately, now that both my kids are entering adulthood. I expect I have something to learn from Lop Lop, or maybe alongside him. I'll add that we were incredibly lucky to have someone who takes their work as seriously and thoughtfully as Wilson involved with our project. So, thank you, Wilson Fowley. And uh, that brings us to Tatiana Gray, who uh, did double duty as the narrator and the voice of our protagonist, Harriet Welch. Uh, Again, I really can't overstate how amazingly useful it is uh, to have someone whose discipline and intelligence is as honed as Tatiana's. Uh, I first met Tatiana when she read a story of mine literally a decade ago, Christ, we're getting old, uh, at a Brooklyn Arts Festival, and uh, then later for Podcastle. She's done a lot of audio work since then, as well as a lot of film work, and we were definitely lucky to have her around to do the insipid profession. Uh, You can also hear her reading uh, Mercurio de Rivera's The Water Walls of Enceladus and uh, N.K. Jemisin's playing nice with God's bowling ball, and she also did a quick stint as the President of the United States in Michael Wells' audio drama, Touch That Dial. Uh, Funny thing is, is that even though it's a complete and utter uh, psychological horror story, uh, it's somehow, uh, hearing her bit makes it feel like we're looking into, you know, not the darkest timeline. But anyway, uh, you can hear for yourself that the voice narrating the novella and the voice uh, she chose for Harriet are very, very different. And I I can tell you uh, firsthand that that's a very hard trick to make work. Uh, I can't do it. Uh, My wife can do it, uh, as you can hear for yourself in uh, Sabbath Wine by Barbara Krasnoff this season and uh, Mercury by Cassie Alexander last season. Uh, Also also on Podcastle, uh, when she read Carolyn Yoakum's Betty and the Squelchy Saurus, that's... Kim Rogers, uh, for those of you listening who don't know, uh, which I do hope is some of you, uh, you know, because we're reaching a broader audience at this point. Uh, But yeah, uh, circling back, I I would say Tatiana was a big part of what really sold uh, these two episodes for me. And uh, another big part, you know, uh, last but not least, uh, is Josiah Woodson. 
Josiah and I went to college together, which is pretty much the only reason why I was lucky enough uh, to have him in my Rolodex. Uh, dude's got a Grammy, played with Beyonce uh, and Clarence Clemens, uh, but lucky for me, he's also a sci-fi nerd. Uh, like, enough of a nerd that we have long, uh, you know, essay-length conversations about the Star Wars Expanded Universe on Facebook, and, and I think that might be why he let us use his music, which, uh, if you've listened to, uh, uh the two episodes, uh, you'll know is incredible. We used, uh, cuts from two different pieces as the, uh, interstitial sound between sections, and it really gave the whole story this, uh, emotional ebb and flow, setting this, you know, super noir atmosphere at some moments and giving this sort of racing forward feeling at others and and it just worked really really well uh, you know in my humble opinion uh, I, I kind of made the choices about what to use so if you don't feel that way uh, that's probably my poor editorial instincts and nothing to do with uh, Josiah's music uh, which again not to repeat myself but uh, you know Grammy uh, anyway uh, I've gone this far without saying a whole lot about the story itself, uh, so let me dive into that can of worms. Uh, I don't think I could have chosen a more fitting story to produce from Jonathan if I'd had my first choice, uh, which again, thank God I didn't, because I didn't know this thing existed. And now I'm going to be that super obnoxious guy and say, if you've read my work, I know, I know, but uh, if you actually have read my work, you probably know I like detective stories. Some of the first books I ever stayed up all night reading when I was a kid uh, were Nancy Drew, The Hardy Boys, and and some super shitty uh, pulp detective novels from the 60s. Uh, There was one about a teenager who ran away to be a surfer, and that was somehow like an entire hard-boiled detective novel. Uh, But of course, it, it probably goes without saying that I was a fan of Lethem's Motherless Brooklyn, but I think uh, the insipid profession of Jonathan Hornbaum actually speaks to me, personally, uh, a little more. Like, there's something about the way in which the art world and the detective genre and magic all intersect that makes so much sense here. Uh, it pulls off this trick of feeling like it was completely obvious uh, in terms of the set of choices uh, that, of course, you know, weren't obvious at all. Uh, because any good detective story, or at least, you know, all the good detective stories I've read, uh, and a bunch of the bad ones, too, uh, they're always about some version of capital T truth, uh, even if the only thing they have to say about it is, uh, you probably should stay away from it. Forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. And so it makes perfect sense that Harriet has to combine what she knows about, you know, what she knows about, uh, with what she knows about what she doesn't know about, uh, in order to bring the story to a head. There's this intellectual and emotional leap that has to happen, this moment of faith that the detective uh, has to have uh, in themselves. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't pay off for them, even when it pays off for us. Uh, that's not the case in this story, uh, but the leap of faith is is the point I guess I'm driving at. Uh, and it happens in the insipid profession, and uh, not for nothing, I, I think it's really amazing that uh, that's the moment where Wilson Fowley's Lop Lop uh, takes the stage, because uh, even though the detective is the actor, the story's never really about them. It's about their business, which, because they're detectives, is inherently someone else's business. And, and that's where the payoff, uh, I would say, sort of lives. And, of course, because it has to be said, uh, this story is what you might call a cover 
of Robert Heinlein's uh, The Unpleasant Profession of Jonathan Hogue. Uh, do you have to have read the Heinlein story first? I mean, look, I saw The Big Lebowski years before I ever saw any of the film noirs that it homages. Uh, is that how you say it in this context? Homages? Uh, and honestly, uh, the only real difference I feel having watched them and then watching The Big Lebowski again is like, huh. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, cool. Uh, that's kind of it. Uh, so, no, I, I don't think... Uh, the insipid profession lives or dies based on how you feel about the Heinlein story. And uh, for what it's worth, uh, Lethem's Sons of the Bird are definitely a lot more fun uh, than Heinlein's. Uh, so there's that. So that's about it from me, at least for today. Uh, I'll be back at you with my thoughts on Theodore Goss's Samaria. Uh, from the Journal of Imaginary Anthropology. Uh, And uh, good news, uh, you'll hear from Wilson again as well uh, for that one. So uh, one more reason to tune in. And uh, yeah, talk to you all soon. could that be Sam? Hello, Brad. What's going on? I thought I'd see you at the office tomorrow. I found it, Brad. The big one. Uh, found what? A genuine Jonathan Lethem. Oh, well, I... that's wonderful. I'm not sure why it couldn't wait until morning, You don't understand, Brad. A find like this, there's a price. There's always a price. Okay. So what was I'm getting there! Fine. This isn't like anything we've gone after before. What was that? You see, Brad, sometimes you collect the story. And sometimes... The story collects you. No. No, it isn't possible. Oh, Oh, you better believe believe it. Overland? Over street! Whatever. What have you done with Sam? Spellingbound's dead. Been so for a while now. But to deal with your meddling, I've got something more delicious in mind. What meddling? Honestly, this is going to take all day if you keep asking. Yoink! Hey, give that back! Get back here! You can't escape into the story. Overland! Over Insipid profession of Jonathan Hornbaum. It was nearly dark. Jonathan Hornbaum rushed along the sidewalk of Fourth Street toward Barrow, terrified. He had to get home and see if the awful thing had recurred. 
He jostled a pair of tie-loosened businessmen as they strolled away from the subway and nearly knocked into a teenager who was attempting to climb the curb with a skateboard. Watch it, dude. Sully, muttered Hornbaum as the teenager clacked away. At Barrow Street, he fumbled open his ironwork gate and went into the entrance under the stoop, to his studio. He pushed past the old canvases, those that had already received the damaging marks, and those that had escaped, to the easel on the back wall, where his newest work sat covered. He pulled the sheet aside, and then recoiled in horror. The child in the foreground was just as he'd painted, eyes wide and shimmering, brimming with tears. The background, a field of flowers, was intact. But the sky, across his soft blue and white sky, was another of the horrendous shapes, a terrifying black cyclone of bones and tendons, a bird beast with shining black eyes that mocked those of the child. The shapes were, as always, painted into his work flawlessly, as if by his own hand. Indeed, he had to suspect his own hand for want of other suspects. But the additions were unimaginably gruesome, visions he could barely stomach, let alone originate. The changes in the paintings forced him to confront the gaps in memory that made a patchwork of his days. He'd tried to ignore the inconsistencies. What was the importance of a lost hour now and again? Amnesia he could live with. But if he was capable of committing these unspeakable desecrations of his work, what else might he be doing during the missing hours? Or could there actually be a hidden tormentor? some mastermind capable of timing his attacks on the paintings to coincide with Hornbaum's blackouts. Enough. He had to know. Harriet was about to close up the office and go upstairs to her apartment when the phone rang. She thought about letting the machine pick it up anyway, and then she thought about her bank balance and reached for the receiver. Hi. Is this Harriet M. Welch, the investigator? The voice had a slight German accent. Right, she said. My name is Jonathan Hornbaum. I'd like to talk to you if I could. Talk? I'd rather... You mean in person? Could I? Your office address is quite near. I'll be here for another half an hour, she said, putting her feet back up on the desk. She opened her drawer and took out the catalog that had come that day from Willie E.'s surveillance supplies and half a tomato sandwich left over from her lunch. When Hornbaum pressed the doorbell, she buzzed him in without looking up. But when he entered the room, she pushed the catalog into the trash basket along with the sandwich wrapping. The products were crap. She smiled up at Hornbaum and said, Mind if I smoke? No, no, he said and shook his head. She lit a cigarette. Sit down. She watched him put himself in the seat across her desk. He was younger than she'd guessed, but seeing his primness and reserve, she understood her mistake. He was dressed like a character actor, in a gray suit, cravat, white gloves, and a bowler. His hair was white, but it still covered his head, 
and his pinched, severe features were overwhelmed by his eyes. They were deep-set, ringed, and huge, an eagle's eyes, if he'd met her gaze. Instead, they darted away. What can I do for you, Mr. Hornbaum? I... I can't explain. I'm afraid it may be the stupidest thing you've ever heard. That's a contest you can't hope to win. What's the problem, a woman, a business arrangement that soured? I have blackouts. Hornbaum managed. Harriet frowned. You drink? Never. I'm not a doctor. I'm not looking for one. Not yet, at least. I need to know what goes on during my missing time, because something's happened to my work. Your work? I'm a painter, and someone or something is changing my work while I'm out. Changing how? Harriet stubbed out her cigarette, not sure whether she was intrigued or annoyed. Adding to my paintings. Terrible things. Okay, wait a minute. You make a living from painting? Her skepticism showed in her voice. He didn't look the type. Well, yes. So you're good, or famous anyway, because you have to be to make a living from art, right? I have a reputation. She worked the story out of him. He lived alone in his own brownstone, his studio in the basement apartment. She upped her fee mentally. The gaps in his memory were not in themselves disruptive. He'd find himself in the park or in front of his television or seated in a restaurant with no memory of how he'd gotten there, but never anywhere unexpected or unlikely. Then, two weeks ago, he'd returned to his studio to find the first of the alterations. Nightmarish, beaked, and taloned things looming in his skies. Defacements, but expert ones. Either some ingenious tormentor, with more knowledge of Hornbaum's comings and goings than he himself possessed, was destroying his work. Or, more horrifying to contemplate, he was destroying it himself. I want to be followed, Hornbaum concluded. I want you to track me like a suspect in a crime. Find out what I do, where I go. I'll pay you for a full report. And if it's not me committing the artistic atrocities... Would you want him arrested? He shuddered. Report to me first, please. Let me decide. Does anyone else have a key to the studio? Hornbaum shook his head. My housekeeper has the upstairs key, but there's no interior stair. It was designed as a separate apartment. I have the only key. I'll need a copy, Harriet said. She was captivated now by the problem, the logistics, the possibility that Hornbaum was merely insane. She shunted to a rear part of her brain. She wanted a puzzle to solve, a locked room mystery, and she wanted more of the checks that Hornbaum now wrote out so readily with his trembling gloved hands, one for her first day of work, and one as a standing retainer. She wanted a series of them, to pad the lining of her hemorrhaging bank account. Assuming the first one didn't bounce, that was. He was as seedy as he was dandified, and from what Harriet had seen of the young MTV fresh Soho art scene, Hornbaum couldn't cut it in that crowd. He agreed to bring her a copy of the key in the morning and to slide it under her door if she was not in. What she didn't say was that she meant to be on his tail by then. The guy was nervous enough as it was.
started with coffee and a pastry at an Italian bakery on 6th Avenue, then walked uptown until he found a locksmith's. She followed him back to her office where he rang, waited, and finally slipped the copied key under her door. Then back to Barrow Street. He went downstairs into the studio, and she set up with the newspaper on a stoop across the street. It was a nice enough day to be paid to kill time on the prettiest street in Manhattan. When he emerged again an hour later, she ducked down behind her paper. He swiveled on his heel and strode up the street at twice his previous speed. She gave him half a block and started after, quelling a pang of curiosity about the studio itself. She still didn't have a key in hand, and anyway, he looked like a man on a mission. Her heart was pounding. The old game. Still magic. Just give me someone to follow, she thought, and I'm a kid again. On 7th, he hailed a cab. She jumped into the street and grabbed the next one, commanding the driver to follow. He raised his eyebrows but didn't say anything. Hornbaum's cab shot uptown, jerking through traffic, catching stretches of timed lights and squeaking to a stop every block for six or seven red lights in a row. And Harriet followed. Several times they swam together in block-long seas of identical yellow cabs, and Harriet had to help the driver stick to Hornbaum's. They crossed town at 53rd Street and finally pulled to the curb in front of the Museum of Modern Art. Hornbaum paid his driver and sped into the lobby of the building, and Harriet had to surrender a 20 in her haste to follow. Six dollar tip, but she'd charge it all to Hornbaum. She pushed through the crowds milling in the outer lobby just in time to catch sight of him paying for his ticket and passing on into the museum. Fair enough. Painter wants to look at paintings. Was he in his blackout phase? She couldn't know. She got in line for a ticket and watched him heading up a packed escalator. She handed over her ticket and hurried through the turnstile, but the escalator was too crowded for her to do anything but stand still and wait her turn. And when she got up to the top, he was nowhere to be seen. She ducked into the permanent collection, a labyrinth of gigantic paintings that seemed to Harriet mostly flat fields of bright color, and scouted the rooms, searching for a glimpse of his white hair. He was not there. She took the escalator up another floor. The exhibition was labeled Anxious Furniture, Surrealist and Dada Objects and Sculpture, 1916 to 1948. And it seemed to be what had drawn the crowds. Perhaps it had drawn Hornbaum. She jostled her way into the first of the rooms. The admirers of the vast paintings downstairs had to stand in the middle of the rooms to take in their full scope. But the displays here were in glass cases and were mostly quite small so the crowds bunched tight around them. Harriet found it completely annoying. She wanted to poke the groups apart to see if Hornbaum was hiding in among them. Instead, she bumped her way around from behind, trying to ignore the inanely reverent comments. She didn't know anything about anxious furniture, but she had the distinct feeling she was in a room full of jokes being taken seriously. She was ready to declare him lost and go back to explore his studio, when suddenly there he was standing still in a stream of moving bodies in front of one of the glass cases. She let a few people pass, then found a place in the group around him a few heads back. Standing up on her toes, she looked over his shoulder. There were three objects in the case. On the left, a teacup, saucer, and spoon, all normally proportioned but covered completely in fur. On the right, a metronome topped with an eye, or a photograph of an eye, and otherwise unaltered. In the middle was an object that seemed a combination of printing press and toy cannon, two-foot-high wheels, 
with a complex assembly of rollers and handles suspended between them, and a gun barrel pointing out at the viewer. Hornbaum stood alone, seemingly frozen there, while groups filled in around him and trickled away to be replaced again and again. Harriet began to think he was in blackout mode now, whether or not he had been on his way up here. But no, Harriet suddenly noticed, Hornbaum wasn't alone. Another man stood as an island in the stream of ogglers. He was young, a few years younger than Harriet, with a little beard that did more to reveal his age than to hide it. He had set up a little to one side of the case and was staring intently at the exhibit. Harriet watched as the younger man became aware of Hornbaum, who was planted so conspicuously in front of the case. She melted back farther, into the crowd, to watch without the risk of being noticed herself. The younger man squinted at Hornbaum as though recognizing him, then looking back at the case, took out a small, spiral-bound notebook and began jotting notes with a pencil. Harriet reflexively patted at the notebook she kept in the kangaroo pocket of her sweatshirt. The younger man went on writing, staring at the objects in the case, and occasionally glancing up at Hornbaum. Hornbaum remained seemingly oblivious, his gaze fixed on the middle object in the case. Suddenly self-conscious of her participation in their odd threesome, she shuffled along to the next case, and followed the flow around the adjacent room, glancing back every few minutes to confirm Hornbaum's presence. Finally, she allowed herself to risk losing him, and finished the loop of the exhibition, which deposited her back at the entrance. She peered in. They were both still there. She started in again and nonchalantly scooted up behind the young man with the beard. In his notebook was a sketch of the cannon slash printing press. He looked up suddenly and around. She turned her head the other way and walked quickly off. As for Hornbaum, an hour had passed since she'd followed him to the museum, and still he stood entranced. She went downstairs and, keeping her eye on the flow through the exit gates, leafed through the exhibition catalog on the gift counter. She found photographs of all three objects in the case. The teacup was labeled Breakfast in Fur by Murray Oppenheim. The metronome was Object of Destruction by Man Ray. And the device in the middle, the one the man with the beard had been sketching, was Bird Camera by Max Ernst. Harriet was hungry and tired of the museum. She went and found the sandwich counter in the courtyard, turning her back for the moment on the exit. If Hornbaum escaped, she'd go back downtown and check his house, and if he wasn't home, she could inspect the studio. A good plan. She treated herself to roast beef and a large Coke, on the client. By the time she was done, the crowd had thinned. She went upstairs. At first, she thought they were both gone. Then she spotted the bearded man sitting on a bench across the room from the glass case. He looked up, and for the second time she had to turn quickly to keep from meeting his eyes. Sloppy she chided herself. She scooted into the next room, then turned and looked back. He was gone from the bench. Well, never mind. It was Hornbaum she should be troubling with. Where was he? Hello. She turned around to find the young man with the beard standing before her, smiling. Hello, she said. Are you with the security staff? He asked, still smiling pleasantly. What? Here at the museum. No, no, excuse me. She craned her neck around, worrying that Hornbaum was in the room. Because you seem to be watching me or following me or something. Not you. Forget it. The old guy, then? The one staring at the Ernst thing? Quiet, she commanded. They were attracting attention. 
He left if that's what you're worried about. So if you weren't following me, would you have a coffee with me? Shh. I, I just had a Coke. Where did he go? No, don't talk. Let's go downstairs. They made their way to the garden. Harriet led him to a table in the farthest corner and sat so that she commanded a view of the entire yard behind him. You don't work for the museum either, she suggested. Nope. I'm rich. Uh, Richard DeBronk. I'm a student. A graduate student, I mean. At Hunter. Professional loafer, Harriet supplied to herself. It fit his bumbling manner, and her suspicion of him eased. Well, I'm Harriet Welsh, she said. What do you know about the man you saw today, Mr. DeBronk? What do I know about... Well, what do you know? I mean, why should I tell you? If you're not working for the museum, what are you doing asking me questions? You asked me out, Richard. This is a date. This is my feeble conversational tack. Have you ever seen that man before? DeBronk assumed a thoughtful pose. I don't think so. He squinted at Harriet. But he did look kind of familiar. Are you some kind of cop? Have you seen him in the exhibit upstairs before? Are you suggesting I have nothing better to do than stand around in museums all day? He tried on an indignant expression and then discarded it with a shrug. You do work for MoMA, don't you? You saw me here before. You're making spontaneous confessions, Mr. DeBronk. She wanted to strangle him. I don't care if you live in the museum. Can you help me by answering my questions straight, or am I wasting my time? Who is he? I swear I know his face. His name is Jonathan Hornbrom. He's- That's Hornbrom? You mean Hornbrom, the crying clown painter? He's a painter, yes. DeBronk literally slapped his knee as he laughed. <laughs> I don't believe it. What's so funny? She felt a protectiveness of her case, of her client. You know those wide-eyed dogs and mimes and little ragamuffin kids? You must know them. He's just like the worst painter in the history of the 20th century. I can't believe that's really him. I thought it was dead. Well, I guess not, assuming we're talking about the same man. There couldn't be two. God. He shook his head. I guess I'm not too familiar with contemporary art, Harriet said. This would be more like familiar with contemporary dentist offices, said DeBronk. I can't believe a guy like that would show his face around here. Or want to. I mean, what do you think he was seeing up there? I'd like very much to know. What's the deal? Why are you following him? I'm not really at liberty to discuss it, and I should go. Here is my card. Please get in touch if you think of anything useful. She stood up. Is this your home phone? Can I see you again? Leave a message. What are you doing tonight? She saw him through his window, upstairs from her place on the stoop across the street. 
The studio key was in her pocket now, but she didn't quite dare to investigate it, with him upstairs and awake. Maybe after he was asleep. She went to 7th Avenue for cigarettes, then paced his block, smoking for nearly an hour. Nothing. She spotted him behind the curtains a few times, passing between rooms, sitting, reading in a chair. You are boring, sir, she reported to him in her head. That'll be $5,000. Or maybe you'd like to leave me your house in your will. On her fourth cigarette, the sun finished setting. She was just about to head back to her apartment when Hornbaum appeared at the top of his stoop, locking his door and tightening his scarf around his neck. She hurried around the corner and watched as he headed for 7th. In the dark, she was more confident following close at his heels, and she tailed him to Waverly Place, where he went into the Coach House restaurant. Here it was, her chance at his studio. She clutched the key in her pocket and half ran back to Barrow. She felt her excitement rise as she finally crossed the street and went through his gate. As a child, her delight had been entering houses surreptitiously. House-sitting or babysitting, she'd always made copies of the neighbor's keys and returned, uninvited, later to drink in the feel of their lives, the traces that lay everywhere. She'd learned about adult life that way, except the adult life she'd made for herself was nothing like that, contained none of the vulnerabilities. What she hadn't told the graduate student at the museum was that the office number was her home number. She skimped on bills by not keeping a phone upstairs. Her little apartment was nearly bare, would tell an intruder nothing. She'd made her childhood spying her work, and she'd made her work her life. She unlocked the basement door and slipped inside into near-total darkness. Street light trickled in through the half-windows, and it occurred to Harriet suddenly that Hornbaum had made an odd choice putting the studio in the basement. No natural light. If he owned the entire brownstone, why not the top floor? She remembered the graduate student laughing in the garden at the museum. She groped along the wall for the light switch, and when she found it, flicked it on. There stood Hornbaum, wearing a madly smeared smock that reached the floor, and holding a dripping brush. He whipped around, exposed in the light, and she saw, in place of his head... The head of a monstrous bird, black eyes shining, beak narrowly open to reveal a pointed pink tongue nestled there and curling at the side of her. Then it was gone, her vision, and instead the human horn bomb borne down on her. He scumbled with his brush on the palette in his left hand, then raised it to her. Do you need repainting, my dear? Her hand instinctively flicked the switch back down, as though the light had called him into being. He couldn't have been painting in the dark, went her wild thoughts, so he hadn't been there at all. Her legs, finding this logic not quite satisfactory, carried her stumbling backwards and out. She turned and ran through the gate and across the street. A woman was walking a small dog, and woman and dog looked up at Harriet as she fled the house. The street was quiet and astonishingly normal. Harriet looked back. The basement was dark, of course, and there was no way of knowing if someone was inside. Harriet stopped and looked back. The dog walker passed. Nobody came out of the basement studio. Face burning with confusion and anger, Harriet half walked, half ran back to the coach house. There was Hornbaum, at a table in the back, sipping fussily from a glass of wine, looking near the end of his meal. She turned away and urged to burst in and demand an explanation instead ducked her head from the restaurant window and hurried home, suddenly terrified and chilled to her heart by the night wind. 
As she let herself into her building, she heard the phone ringing behind her office door. She went into her office and listened as her answering machine picked up the call. Hi, it's Richard DeBronk. We talked today, and I was just wondering, even though I don't really have any useful information for you, I mean about the crying clown man, whether you might want to have a drink with me or something later tonight, or if tonight's not good. She grabbed the phone and switched off the machine. Hi, where do you want to meet? Oh, hello. You're there. I, uh, I guess I didn't think of a place. I wasn't actually expecting... White Horse Tavern. It's on Hudson and 11th. Wow. Great. I guess you probably need some time. I'll be there in ten minutes. Where are you coming from? Chelsea. No problem. I'll be there soon. Uh, great. Harriet was cold and afraid, the universe having opened a gap she couldn't begin to account for. Her fear made her jump at an invitation she would otherwise ignore. Within half an hour, she had herself shrouded in the almost medieval coziness and gloom of the White Horse, bolstered from within by Irish coffee, and enveloped in the loopy, discursive talk that was looking to be Richard de Bronx's trademark. content of Max Ernst's work, the interrelations between some of his imagery and specific case studies in Freud, right? Good, solid research topic, you know? I mean, the Surrealists all worked with dream imagery, automatic writing. They all loved pseudoscientific techniques, so it's not a revolutionary thesis, but I'm explicating the details, nailing it down, right? Art history departments are built on this kind of stuff. There's thesis work like this piled up to the ceiling. They give you your assistant professorship and then burn the dissertation to keep warm. So I was just digging around, verifying dates of paintings and collages so nobody could screw me up questioning the lines of influence and stuff. With historical assertions, it's like proving plagiarism in court. You have to demonstrate access. The connections can't just seem fertile from our vantage point. It has to have been at least possible that it would occur to the people involved. Okay, so I was working on sources for Ernst's collage novels. You've seen Ernst's collage novels, right? Uh, no. Oh, God, you've got to. They're great. A Hundred Headless Woman and Un Simon de Bante, which translates to something like A One Week of Kindness. They're all these pictorial novels made up of collages. Well, at least everybody thinks they're collages, but I'll get to that. Anyway, they're all these really striking images of people with rooster heads, lion heads, Easter Island statue heads, and they're all in these domestic melodrama situations, performing these bizarre acts on each other. It's this vision of the world as a surreal nightmare, an endless series of revelations of monstrous things just under the surface. So you can see why it relates so well to Freud. It's like Ernst is exposing 
the unconscious reality. I follow. Well, okay. So it's widely asserted that Ernst's source material for these pictures, these hundreds of collages, was woodcut illustrations from Victorian pulp magazines and children's books, right? Because they look like those kinds of illustrations, everybody just made this assumption. Only a handful of the Ernst originals even exist. What everybody's working from are the published books. Well, I went back to the originals. I dug them out of some private collections, and I discovered something very weird. They're original engravings. Maybe you've lost me. They're not cut up and pasted together. You can't find any of the seams. What's passing for original collages are single, engraved images. If some kind of combining of elements ever occurred, it was at some earlier stage, and then Ernst, for no apparent reason, painstakingly reproduced his collages as original engravings. And nobody has any of the earlier versions, the actual collages, but that's not even the weirdest thing. Okay, I'm baited. What's the weirdest thing? The presumed sources don't exist. The images originate with Ernst. No illustration anywhere corresponds to any part of any collage. I've wasted six months searching every possible archive, and now I'm sure. The collages have no sources. DeBronck couldn't mask the triumph on his face. Didn't even really try. This is a big deal? Harriet suggested tentatively. This is a huge deal. This is my career being made, because discoveries like this aren't just lying around everywhere. So the object in the case, at the museum? Well, now I'm trying to track down the real process. The methods Ernst used to create these images that he pretended were collages. He didn't own engraving tools of that type during the years the collage novels appeared. I've opened up huge mysteries about his process, his motives... And I want to try to solve some of that myself. Present a finished package when I drop this bombshell, you know. Just before the collage novels appeared, Ernst created the object in the case, the bird camera. There are numerous sketches for it in his notebooks. Unlike a lot of famous surrealist objects, it wasn't just tossed off. It's a very complicated design. The plans for it have generally been regarded as a sort of elaborate hoax, a pretense that it had some function. That kind of coy crypto science is very typical of surrealists. So everyone just always assumed that it was a non-functional object, a pretend machine. But after Ernst created Bird Camera, he didn't sell it, wouldn't let it out of his studio, even took it with him when he traveled, and it's a pretty bulky object. You think? I'm sure of it. It's an image fabrication machine. Some weird, unique design that Ernst came up with. The collages began appearing right after the bird camera was finished. Can you prove it? The museum won't let me near it. It's on loan from a museum in France. Ernst had to leave it behind when he fled the war. It'll be in New York for two more weeks, then back to Paris. You know it's insured for millions of bucks. It's fragile as hell. All that stuff is. Because the Surrealists weren't really sculptors. They just threw their things together. And I'm just a nobody graduate student. If I tell them why I want to see it, I blow my scoop. Wow. 
Yeah, wow. Uh, you want another drink? He went to the bar and brought back two more Irish coffees. Decaf, don't worry. So, now you. What? Your turn. You have to tell me what you were doing at the museum. Ricard says investigator, but I don't even know what that means. Harriet was brought unexpectedly back to Hornbaum. She wondered if Richard de Bronck could see her stiffen. I'm a researcher, she said, like you. Sometimes it involves footwork. Hornbaum led me to the museum. I still don't know what he was doing there, but I'll find out. De Bronck made a face. Come on, context, context. Why are you following the crying clown man? Harriet sighed, and some of the tightness in her chest eased. He hired me. It's an unusual case. He's been suffering blackouts, and somebody's changing his paintings. <laughs> that can only be a good thing, said de Bronck, grinning. Well, he doesn't think so. He hired me to investigate. And? I don't know. I went to his studio tonight while he wasn't there, and something was wrong. His studio? You have the key to his studio. She nodded. He put his hand on her arm. Take me there. No! He put his hands together pleadingly. I promise not to tell anyone, but it's irresistible. It's too funny. I have to see it, please. Please. No, stop! I don't want to talk about this anymore. I shouldn't. It's a breach that I told you anything. Sorry. She shivered. Too much alcohol, too much caffeine, too many questions. Listen, thanks for calling. It was interesting hearing your story. I've got to get to bed. Six. Harriet switched on the television to drown out her thoughts as she fell asleep. She caught the end of the opening credits of the midnight movie. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock. As she climbed into her bed. Perfect. She built a fort of pillows and blankets around her and settled in to watch. It wasn't one she'd seen. A classic Hitchcock icy blonde and a hunkish hero were flirting in a pet shop. An amiable enough opening, but Harriet knew Hitchcock. Sure enough, the situation quickly darkened. A possessive mother had her claws in the hero. A pair of lovebirds were purchased at the pet shop by the blonde, intended as a gift for the hunk, but undeliverable, a symbol of something, Harriet was sure. Then real trouble began. The lovebirds began to swell and deform, bursting the bounds of the wire cage until they were the shape and size of men cloaked in feathery three-piece suits. They shook themselves loose of the shards of cage like chickens freeing themselves of eggshells, cocked their heads briefly at one another, and then climbed through the frame of Harriet's television set and into her bedroom. Mademoiselle Welch, said the slimmer of the two birds. We must speak with you. Interloper, meddler, hypocrite, said the stout one. Harriet tried to rise from her bed and found that somehow she couldn't, tried to speak, and found herself voiceless. Breton is rather upset. He feels you are interfering with the development of a most promising pupil, said the slim one. Handbam must be left alone, said the stout one. You are not to investigate the case of Handbam. To continue is punishable by excommunication from all you hold most dear. My name is Eloise said the slimmer bird. Don't let Breton upset you. He's merely saying how important it is. We'll have you thrown to the sparrows, Breton squawked. It's the good bird, bad bird routine, Harriet thought. It's crucial in selecting an investigation, 
said Eluard. That you not inadvertently disrupt another, perhaps more crucial investigation already underway. We trust your error was in the nature of an oversight. To the sparrows that rend and devour! To investigate birds, you must become a bird, said Eluard. Creatures that live to shred hump! Sleep now, mademoiselle, said Eluard, nudging Breton back towards the television. You've been warned. Well, looks like it's just me tonight. Now, if I can just... God damn it! Who could it? Oh, what is Overbridge doing here? What do you want? James, James, you're not gonna believe what Don Fairweather Jenkins has done. No, no, sewn up my circus. Wait, you have got to listen. Sewn, not my monkeys. But... Not even my 35 cent bag of peanuts. What I have to tell you changes everything! Uh, okay, uh, how does it I'm Uh, getting there! Previously on the Kaleidocast. I... Is this Harriet M. Welch, the investigator? What can I do for you, Mr. Hornbaum? I'm a painter, and someone or something is changing my work. I want to be followed. I want you to track me like a suspect in a crime. I'm rich. Uh, Richard DeBronk. What's the deal? Why are you following him? I'm not really at liberty to discuss it, and I should go. Here is my card. Please get in touch if you think of anything useful. It's widely asserted that Ernst's source material for these pictures, these hundreds of collages, was woodcut illustrations from Victorian pulp magazines and children's books, right? The presumed sources don't exist. The images originate with Ernst. Interloper, meddler, hypocrite, Handbam must be left alone to continue is punishable by excommunication from all you hold most dear. And now the conclusion. Seven. Harriet woke up angry. Hornbaum was playing with her and she resented it. 
Her idiotic dream was galling confirmation of her own susceptibility to his trick, his stunt, whatever it was he'd pulled off in the studio. In the bright light of morning, it was clear to her that it had been nothing more than a clever special effect. The question was, what was the odd little man up to? What motive did he have for involving her in his games? She'd find out, that was for sure. She dressed and went out, grabbed coffee and a donut on Greenwich Avenue, and got to Barrow just in time to see Hornbaum hurrying down the stoop, his collar up around his neck, his gaze darting nervously up and down the street, yet seeming not to take her in. She hesitated as he scurried up the street toward 7th. Her urge to confront him vied with her curiosity, and lost, she trailed a safe distance behind. Half an hour later, she followed him into the anxious furniture exhibition and watched as he planted himself in front of bird camera. After fifteen or twenty minutes, she approached him, partly to set a boredom with the alternative. Mr. Hornbaum, she said, stepping up behind him. We need to talk. He turned and stared at her with a look of horror, and then darted away. Wait a minute, she said and took off after him, ignoring the stares she drew. Hornbaum made straight for the nearest guard, a stout black man stuffed like a sleeping bag into his gray polyester uniform. Help me, please. This woman has been following me. Hmm? The guard roused slowly to Hornbaum's frantic request. She bothering you? I want you to arrest her, Hornbaum said as Harriet arrived. Her? I ain't no cop, said the guard. What is this, Hornbaum? Don't pretend- Please, sir, help. Hornbaum cowered from Harriet. She won't leave me alone. They were beginning to draw attention away from the nearest object, sugar cubes trapped in a wicker cage. This is ridiculous, said Harriet. He hired me. I've, I've never seen her before, said Hornbaum. But as you see, she's quite insistent. Please. Another guard, a middle-aged woman, stepped through the circle forming around them. Let's get her out of here, she said. Harriet became suddenly conscious of the fact that Hornbaum, in his suit and gloves and carefully combed white hair, looked every bit the helpless uptown victim, while she, in her torn sweatshirt and gray Adidas, probably appeared thuggish. The black guard put his hand on her arm. We can hold her here for the police if you want, he said to Hornbaum, but you're going to have to stick around and make a statement. The museum don't have no charges to press. We just kick her out. I'll press charges myself, said Harriet. I've got Hornbaum's personal check in my desk. I'm working for him. Keep it down, said the first guard. This is a museum. You can argue it out when the cops get here. Okay, people, said the female guard. Back to the show. The two of them steered Harriet back through the crowd toward the lobby. Hornbaum scurried after. They pushed through a door, marked Personnel, to a tiny room where a third guard, an overweight man with a pink bloated nose, sat at a desk with a coffee and a newspaper. We gotta sit on these two, said the first guard, jerking a thumb at Hornbaum. He wants to press charges. He pushed Harriet toward a chair against the wall. What a day, groaned the guard with the pink nose. The female guard pushed the door closed, but just as quickly it pushed back open, and Richard DeBronc popped in. Excuse me, he said. Personnel only, said the guard with the pink nose. Richard, started Harriet. I think I can clear this up for you if you give me a minute, said Richard, grabbing the hand of the guard at the desk and shaking it vigorously. Dr. DeBronc, I'm in charge of the outpatient clinic at St. Belfort's. Should I get a cop now? 
said the female guard. There's no need for a cop, said DeBronc. This is a misunderstanding between two patients, two very unstable patients. I assigned Harriet and Jonathan a museum trip today, and it's 100% my fault if they created some kind of problem. Harriet groaned. She could tolerate DeBronc rescuing her, barely. But this performance was getting a little campy. Hornbaum began to turn red. I see no reason why this preposterous... DeBronc put a warning finger in the air. Now, Jonathan, why don't you run along and we'll see you back at the residence. You shouldn't let Harriet provoke you so easily. Here, this nice lady will help you find your way downstairs. He stage-winked at the female guard and nodded broadly at Hornbaum, who could only bluster incoherently. The pink-nosed guard opened a drawer of the desk and took out a bottle of Pepto-Bismol and poured it into his coffee. There you go, that's good, said DeBronc, nudging the female guard and Hornbaum back through the door. What about her? said the first guard, looking at Harriet. Harriet stuck her tongue out at him. She can be a little tricky, said DeBronc. I probably ought to rehypnotize her. Jesus Christ, said the guard with the pink nose. Okay, never mind. Do you need me to sign something? We got an incident form. Let me save you the paperwork. Harriet, you sit still. Let me fill that out for you, sir. My apologies for all this trouble. He went to the desk and took the form away from the guard. This pen doesn't work. He dug in the drawer, knocked the newspaper from the desktop, and mixed a sequence of profuse apologies to the guards with stern admonitions to Harriet not to move a muscle. Remember what happened the day you got loose at the zoo? The guards rolled their eyes. Finally, he signed the bottom of the form with a flourish. R. de Bronc, Ph.D. That's piled higher and deeper. <laughs> Came out from behind the desk and took Harriet's arm. And out they went. Harriet tugged free as they left the museum and rushed to the street corner looking for Hornbaum. The river of cabs attested to his likely easy escape. DeBronc caught up with her a minute later. I am going to kill him, she said. First I'm going to make him tell me what the hell he's up to, and then I'm going to kill him. Did you see? DeBronc nodded. I'd just gotten there when you went up to him. I caught the whole thing, he said. They walked back to the portico of the museum. He's trying to make me a pawn in some game he's running, she said. But he picked wrong. I'm going to nail him. DeBronc nodded. If there's anything to nail, he seems kind of out of it to me. An act, trust me. He smiled. I do, actually. What's that supposed to mean? Hey, speaking of acts, what was all that crap? Ulterior motives. You're quite the little bullshit artist, Dr. DeBronc. Thank you. Don't take it as a compliment until you stop bullshitting, please. What ulterior motives? Are you flirting with me? Well, he said, grinning lasciviously. There's a palm set of museum keys in my pocket. He jingled his loot. But that doesn't mean I'm not glad to see you. You have to help me, Harriet. I can't do it alone. She and DeBronc were in her office talking over sandwiches and coffee when the door buzzer sounded. Yes, she said into the intercom. Miss Felch, it's Jonathan Hornbaum. 
May I speak with you? She looked at DeBronc, who shrugged. Just a minute, she said and clicked the intercom off. You can't be here, she said. After what happened, it can't turn out that I know you. It guts my case against him if he recognizes you from the museum and thinks we're collaborating. So hide me. Hide you? Is this what it's always like to hang out with you, DeBronc? Hey, you're the one with a comic book career. Shut up and get in the closet. She buzzed Hornbaum in and slid the sandwiches into her desk drawer. He opened the door to her office and she said, Sit down. He sat meekly. It's probably too soon, I realize. But I couldn't help wondering if you had some sort of update, any information at all regarding the past two days. I might. Oh, good. I've been... There's been more changes in the paintings. I'm sure. Phil, oh dear. Do I need to bring our account up to date? He pulled out his checkbook and pen. That's not exactly the problem, Mr. Hornbaum. Before you fill that out, I need to ask you a couple of questions. Of course. I'm not necessarily in a position to protect you if what I uncover is evidence of criminal activity on your part, or even criminal intent. Do you understand that? Oh, God. What have I done? Just answer my question, please. I understand. He sank his head into his gloved hands. Okay, the second thing is that I'm no more interested in playing victim than I am accomplice or accessory. In the latter regard, I might find a way to turn a blind eye to things. But if you fuck with me, I'll take you down. And fast, got that? The sudden rough language was a calculated effect, and Harriet saw it work. Hornbaum gaped at her, slack-jawed. Please, tell me what I've done. Please finish answering my questions. What were you doing at the museum today? The museum? I've no idea. I've no memory of today. That's the problem. You must believe me, please. Harriet made a face, stalling. Finally, she said, Go ahead and write me a check. Make it for two more days. Yes, of course. He scribbled it out staining his glove with ink and tore it from the book. As he handed it to her, he spoke in a near whisper. Will you tell me, please, what you know of my activities? You've been visiting the museum, and something's definitely wrong with your studio. That's my report for today. Go home, Mr. Hornbaum. I'll call you when my work is complete. Please. I don't want to interfere until the pattern has become clear, she said. And as she said it, Eloard's warning from her dream echoed in her head. Important not to disrupt another, more important investigation. Hornbaum nodded in a deflated way and went to the door. When he was gone, DeBronc came out of the closet and sat in a seat across the desk from Harriet. He doesn't remember. Or it's a superb act. Maybe you better fill me in on this now. She did, from the beginning, without skipping anything but the idiotic dream. Well, he said when she'd finished. It's obvious what you need. What? Same thing I need. A partner. If he's playing some game, he's counting on your being alone. There's two of us. One following him, the other staking out the studio. Whoa, slow down.
Nine. Harriet didn't finish losing the argument until they were outside the darkened rear entrance to the museum. She gave up when he began fumbling at the door with his stolen keys. She pushed his hand away and whispered, Wait. I told you, I'm going in with or without you. Whatever, but you can't just break in like that. Jeez, here, you need this. He stared at the device she pulled out of her bag. What's that? Well, the main security system's probably motion detectors. On all the floors and maybe in the displays, too. This thing averages out the kind of motion disturbance that triggers alarms. Like a steady cam. So it'll cloak us from that kind of system. Wow. Of course, if they've got something else, we're dead meat. Oh. They crept inside. No alarms sounded. The halls were half-lit, eerily so. Empty, the lobby was oppressively large, and crossing it, Harriet felt exposed like a cat in a cathedral. They stopped at the frozen escalator and listened. Surely they were overnight guards. Just as surely, in Harriet's experience, those guards were sequestered in some room like the one she'd been taken to earlier that day, and surrounded with some combination of booze, cigarettes, radio cards, or pornographic magazines, if not all of the above. Hearing nothing, they tiptoed up the inert steps, two floors, to anxious furniture. In the gloom of the emptied museum, Harriet was suddenly aware of the strange, vibratory power of the pieces in the exhibition. Ogled by throngs, the objects had been reduced to monkeys in cages. Now, they were somehow predatory, feeding on the darkness and silence, and leaking it back out in purified form. Debronc unlocked the case containing his and Hornbaum's mysterious favorite. He plucked bird camera off its perch and eased it through the narrow opening in the back of the case, then wrapped it up in his coat, making a bulky, obvious bundle. Richard looked at the empty spot in the case between the metronome and the teacup, guiltily. Then, suddenly inspired, he handed bird camera to Harriet. He snuck into the hall and came back with the small red fire extinguisher. Cigarette, he whispered. She gave him one. He stuck it into the nozzle at the top of the fire extinguisher, to which it imparted a jaunty continental air, and put the new object in the case in place of the missing Ernst. On the second floor, they froze, hearing noises from the lobby. Someone on patrol. They waited until the sounds trickled away, then slipped back through the lobby and out, unharassed, booty intact. They ferried it in a cab back to her office. DeBronk unwrapped it on her desk and then sank into her chair, hollow-eyed. What? said Harriet. We stole it. I can't believe it. Yeah, we stole it. One of the major pieces in Ernst's career. This is like the most fatal thing I could possibly do in my profession. I can't believe it's sitting here. We took it out of the museum. What, are you going to fall apart on me now? You had to. You said you had to. Christ. It's just... Here. She opened her bottom drawer and handed him a bottle of whiskey. Wow. He said dreamily. What now? You really keep whiskey in your desk. Like a private eye. She rolled her eyes. He shook his head. You're just so cool. He took a slug from the bottle. Okay. Paper. Paper. I need paper. She opened her upper drawer and pulled out a few sheets of her stationery. Scissors. Need to cut it down a little. She supplied scissors. He took another bolt from the whiskey bottle and set to slimming the paper. He checked it against the width of the bird camera, then cut off another sliver. Okay, here goes. 
he said, manipulating the knobs tucked under the cannon at the end of the sculpture. You know how it works? Harriet was the nervous one now. What if they destroyed it? I memorized the notebook pages where he designed this thing, said de Bronck. They were all I had until now. His tongue stuck out of one side of his mouth as he eased the fitted paper into the maw of the press, then flicked the knob underneath the right-hand wheel. There was a flash at the mouth of the cannon, as though it had fired. A lick, a grinding of gears, and the paper was drawn into the heart of the machine. A pause. Then the paper rolled smoothly out the other end, like a Polaroid film. DeBronc hurried around the desk and caught it as it fell. The engraving was in the style of a 19th-century woodcut illustration, but it showed the corner of Harriet's office. Harriet was just at the edge of the frame, her shoulder at the bottom of the left corner, the side of her head and ear visible along the ledge. Hovering in the space of the room and filling the center of the engraving were the two birds from Harriet's dream, Breton and Eluard. Eluard was smoking a pipe, and Breton was holding a bright metallic-looking sphere which intersected the lobe of Harriet's ear like a hoop earring. It's incredible, said de Bronck. It's an original Ernst. An original posthumous Ernst. Harriet stared. It's a photograph, she said. That's me. Not a photograph exactly. A maxograph. From Max Ernst. He's like another Leonardo. God, this is so great. Harriet couldn't find voice to express her apprehension about what the maxograph revealed. DeBronck began excitedly cutting more paper to size and loading it into the tray at the back of the device. Do one of me. He aimed the cannon at himself. Push the button. She turned the knob, and bird camera snapped another shot. DeBronck, with the head of a crocodile, wearing a top hat, and holding a figurine of a naked Aphrodite. In the air over his head flew a small black sparrow. It's like a surrealist party toy, said DeBronck. The conceit is that it uncovers psychical reality, takes a picture of the subconscious world. He must have programmed the etching blades with thousands of images, and it combines them to match what the camera lens is aimed at. It's brilliant. Let's... let's take a maxograph of someone else. Okay, outside. He scooped up bird camera, and they went out onto the street. Holding it at chest level, he aimed it at a young couple walking on the other side of the street. A giant rooster walking an ape on a leash, in a hail of disembodied breasts. The buildings behind showed a variety of nightmarish dramas half hidden behind the window curtains. Wow, he's even got a program so Lop Lop is in each picture, said DeBronk. What's Lop Lop? Not what, who. Lop Lop was a bird character, sort of Ernst's imaginary alter ego. He put Lop Lop in a lot of the collages. Not all of those birds are named Lop Lop, Harriet wanted to say, but the words didn't come out. Harriet, I'm going to be famous. It's okay that we broke in. Nobody will care. I'm happy for you. Well, what's the matter? Nothing, nothing. I just need a favor, okay? No questions. Sure. We have to take a picture... A maxograph of Hornbaum, right away. He smiled and shrugged. Sure, sounds hilarious. Let's go. She bit her lip. They walked to Barrow Street. Hornbaum's studio lights were on. Harriet stopped a bronc at the stoop across the street. 
His house first. The famous Hornbroom residence, exposed by the all-seeing bird camera. He announced and turned the knob. Flash. Water poured out of the windows of the upper floors to meet the flames licking out of the windows to the basement studio, producing clouds of steam that drifted off and mingled with the clouds of the night sky. The moon above was being mothered like an egg by an enormous vulture. Harriet shuddered, then caught herself. She had to know. I... I want to catch him painting, she said. With that thing. You can include the maxograph with your report as evidence. DeBronx suggested merrily. They slipped across the street and through his gate and went to the ground-level window of the basement studio. Harriet peered over the top. There he was, back turned, shoulders draped in the spattered smock. She pointed. DeBronc aimed bird camera. Something, some noise or disturbance in the air altered him. As the cannon flashed, he turned and saw them. Run! Harriet whispered, and in the grip of some unnatural fear, turned and fled herself. DeBronc caught up with her as she unlocked the door to her office. Look, he said, holding up the maxograph. It was Hornbaum with the maniacal bird's head she'd hallucinated the night before. The painting he was working on was of Harriet, herself, her huge eyes flooding with tears. Before she could utter a word, the phone in her office rang, suddenly sure it was Hornbaum. She pulled the door shut again, not even wanting to hear him record a message, not even wanting to enter a room he'd so recently inhabited. Upstairs, she said, half gasping. DeBronc followed her into her apartment, and while she carefully locked the door, he put bird camera on her counter and spread the nightmarish maxographs out on the kitchen table. No, she said when she turned and saw them. She scooped them up and put them in a drawer with a pile of folded tablecloths. What's the matter? Nothing, I just don't want to look at them. At night. You're acting strange. Yes, I know. She launched herself toward him, to shut him up, and for other reasons. Kill two birds she caught herself thinking. The kiss started badly, their teeth clacking together, but lasted long enough that they put the mistakes behind them. Wow. He said. You should get rid of that stupid little beard, she said. It makes you look like a boy with a beard. But if I shave it off, then I'll just look like a boy. No, if you shave it off, you'll look like a young, um, guy. Fellow, you mean. Young man, young guy, dude, something. Not a boy with a beard. They kissed some more. I thought you were going to complain about the scratchiness, he said. No, I like that, but it looks stupid. They went into her room and lay on the bed together. Suddenly he sat up. Just one more, Max Graf, he said. I have to do the television. Harriet sighed. Please? He kissed her, then pulled away and got bird camera out of the kitchen. Something Ernst couldn't have imagined. Something that didn't exist. He switched her television on. Star Trek. That should do it, she said. He got back on the bed beside her and aimed the cannon eye. Flash. Kirk and Spock in each other's arms. Bones glowering in the background. The tricorder in Spock's hand had been changed into a small gray dove, which he held to the captain's breast. Spock. Kirk. I never knew. Said DeBronk. Seems like a hint, said Harriet. You know, birds do it, bees do it, even Kirk and Spock do it. Mph. He kissed her, putting bird camera and the new maxograph on her bedside table.
Then, for a long while, only the sound of their breathing and the babble of the television. I wonder, he whispered, if someone took a maxograph of us now. Their clothes were all on the floor. Probably you'd turn out to be Hornbomb, she said. So let's skip it. Oh. Finally, they were still as well as quiet. They lay together on the pillows as the television blared. Now, for the first time offered to the general public, never before available, a unique six-CD package of goof hits of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's right, all these hits. As the voice listed songs, a snippet of each played underneath. Flying Purple Eater. The Streak. Convoy. Rainy Day Woman Number 12. And 35. Surfin' Bird. At that moment, a flock of birds rushed through the television screen into the room. They landed on the floor and grew into a scowling, feather-suited jury. Eluard and Breton at the fore. Doesn't she know about the bird? said one. I thought by now everyone had been informed regarding the bird. She should know about the bird, said Eluard. We told her that the bird was the word. Yes, in the beginning was the bird, said another. We must exact our punishment, said Breton. Tada, said a bird in the rear. Harriet found again that she couldn't move or speak. She and de Bronck were trapped, naked, and immobile in the bed. Perhaps we should make our objections more clear, said Eluard. Perhaps we should rend flesh from bone, said Breton. Please, Aragon, will you silence Breton? Sarah, where is Sarah? Uh, Tristan, please, if you will, elucidate for this Adam and Eve the gravity and direness of the situation. A bird with spectacles stepped up to the bed. You must understand that we are only the sons of the bird. The true bird is everywhere, and he is far more powerful, more dangerous than we handful of sons. So, for so many years, the bird who is everywhere ruled unopposed, and his was a cruel reign, spasmodic in its violence, brutal in its indifference. Then we sons were born, out of the ashes of the crudest, bloodiest birth spasms the bird had ever known. There had been sons before, but scattered, isolated, helpless to sound the alarm. We were the first sons to band as we did, though indeed we too were helpless in the face of the ravages of the bird, the ravages that were to come. Among us sons was one known as Laplop, bird superior. He, more than any other, could glimpse the bird who is everywhere. His unerring finger found the bird out, warned of its claws. Laplop must live again, said Breton. You must resist interfering any further, concluded Zara somberly. How can they be trusted? You see, they have his camera. How will Hornbom find it here? It is true, said the one called Aragon. It is not enough now that they desist. Damage is done. Take her hostage, 
But this could be called advantageous, said Eloard. Bunglers they may be, but they freed his instrument from its tomb. They returned it to use, which Hornburn himself could not do. It must be delivered, said Aragon. Take the man. Leave her with the camera. When it is delivered, she shall have him back. Then we have our lollipop. Eve shall have her Adam. Revenge! Excommunication! shrieked Breton. No, said Zara. It is enough that we take him. Away, now. The birds rose, flapping into the air of Harriet's bedroom as they swirled through the air in a vortex towards the television. De Bronck rose up from the bed and shrank until he circled away with them into the drain of the screen. The cyclone of birds left not a single feather. Harriet fell asleep. Ten. Harriet didn't want to think about what had gone so wrong that DeBronc left without bird camera, or, from the look of things, most of his clothes. The utter jerk. She stumbled out of her bedroom and into the kitchen. She opened the tablecloth drawer and stared at the stack of maxographs. In the light of day, the images were unconvincing, and she couldn't imagine what had scared her so much the night before. They were clever. The device that had produced them was clever, certainly. But it was clever nonsense and she was tired of it. Art. She was swearing off art now, generally, and swearing off clever, nonsensical art historians in particular. She made coffee and considered her situation. The sculpture in her bedroom was stolen property, important stolen property. She would have to get it back. And her client was bullshit. She needed to drop him. She suddenly wondered if Richard de Bronck was Hornbaum's colleague. It would explain a lot. DeBronck had suggested it would take two to uncover Hornbaum's hijinks. But wasn't it equally true that it would take two to produce them? The only thing that kept her from returning the uncashed check in her wallet was, well, the uncashed check in her wallet. Her account cried for it. She'd contracted to trail him for a third day and deliver a report. And if she did so, she could rightfully keep the money. One more day of surveillance wouldn't hurt. It might even clear up a few things. For Harriet, shadowing was therapeutic. It placed her in her deepest, truest self, her pleasure in stealth, her core of ancient curiosities. She picked up Hornbaum at his door and followed him to a cafe for coffee and a newspaper. She found her own copy of the paper while he was engrossed in his. No mention of the missing bird camera. He caught a cab heading uptown, and she did the same, thinking, rerun. Sure enough, Hornbaum's cab pulled up at the museum. Harriet told her cabbie to stop. Suddenly, it hit her. If they were working together, Hornbaum wouldn't bother to come back up here. Bird camera isn't here. A chink opened in her skepticism, and through it, she glimpsed a horror film sequence of images from the night before. Uh, 68th Street in Lexington, she told the cabbie. What? 
I changed my mind. The cabbie shrugged, turned the wheel, and honked his way back into the flow of traffic. She paid her fare and ran into the bustling lobby of the main building at Hunter College, working her way through the mobs of students to the information desk. Graduate offices of the art history department, she said. 409? She went upstairs in the elevator and in room 409 found the secretary for the department. I'm looking for Richard DeBronc, she said. You'll have to wait in line. What do you mean? Well, dear, he wouldn't ordinarily be around here. He's writing his dissertation. Doesn't require that he appear at the department much. But he is teaching an undergraduate class across the street, and they've called twice this morning looking for him. He didn't show up? If he did, they didn't let me know about it. Last I knew, the class was waiting for him. What's the room number? Harriet went downstairs and out and into the annex across the street. She found his classroom just as the last of the students were giving up waiting. DeBronc didn't show up? she asked. Nope. He's a flaky type, right? Does this often? What the hell are you from the administration? He's never missed a class before. Harriet's heart sank. DeBronc was a real person with real responsibilities and connections in the world, not just some capricious con man. Where was he? She went outside and caught a cab home. At her office door, she paused, looked inside quickly to see if there were any phone messages. No. She rushed up to her bedroom, switched on the television, and began flipping channels. On Channel 9, a Partridge Family rerun was just starting. The opening sequence, a series of animated partridges hatching from eggs. But instead of the Partridge Family, the newborn birds turned into the cabal from Harriet's dream. Eluard, Breton, Zara, Aragon, and several others. They smiled and waved as one by one they were introduced. At the end of the sequence came the one continuing character who wasn't a partridge, who wasn't hatched. The talented family's beleaguered, whining manager. Played in today's episode by Richard DeBronc. To add to the manager's usual humiliations at the hands of the partridge children, DeBronc was naked. As the show opened, the monstrous birdmen were at their instruments, bobbing together as they played, Breton singing lead, a scabrous, surfing bird in a thick French accent. DeBronc scurried around the perimeter, wringing his hands, his penis flapping, insisting hopelessly that they practice some other song. Horrified, Harriet snapped the television off. She sat stunned for a minute as the impossible truth sank in. Then she grabbed bird camera, stuffed it into a shopping bag in the kitchen, and ran downstairs and out. At Barrow Street, Hornbaum was already back in his studio, wearing his spattered smock. She crossed the street and knocked on his window. He went on painting, his back to her. She let herself in with the key. As she stepped into the studio, there was a rush from the canvases lining the walls, and she was surrounded by a posse of sad-eyed children, looming top-heavy homeless person clowns, and puppy watchdogs with enormous weepy eyes. They massed all around her, hemming her in, backing her toward the door. The puppies growled gently. The children murmured to themselves, Is a nice lady a bird too? Where's my daddy? I just want to play house, but there's nothing but bullies on my block. And the clowns chanted in sing-song voices, Gotta cheer up the birds, they're not nasty birds, they're just grumpy. Can't let them get you down, oh yeah. 
but who's the lady with the package? Don't want no birds in here. Gotta make Mr. Hornbum happy. He's the boss. Oh-ho. Their gabbling rising to a roar, the clowns and puppies and children floated up to loom over Harriet, threatening to smother her with their marshmallow-soft bodies. She struck out at one, and it burst like a balloon, spattering gobs of oil paint all over her arm. Hornbomb! Harriet shouted over the din. He went on frantically painting, tossing off new children and puppies and clowns who insistently rose from the canvas to join the barrage. Hornbomb, I have your report! I don't need a report, he said without turning. My situation is all too clear. What situation? She swatted the forms away from her mouth and eyes. I went to the museum. He turned and looked at her accusingly. Someone had stolen the bird detector I'd been coveting. The shock of it opened my eyes. I got it for you, right here. No, no, my dear. I can see the birds all by myself now. I don't need it. I've been thrown back on my own resources. I understand now. The birds are everywhere. It's just me and my children. That's all I can count on. He smiled maliciously. For instance, you, my dear, I see that you are a bird, like all the others. How frightening that a few short days ago I was so blind as to walk into your nest and ask you for help, as though you could help me. He dashed off a pair of enormous, weepy, disembodied eyes, which were so impatient to join the throng that they floated off the canvas by themselves before their maker could surround them with the clown. Harriet pushed the forms away from her, but as they met the resistance of others pressing behind them, they began to melt together, like soap bubbles, and form the beginnings of one huge clown, whose oil paint hide was much thicker than that of his miniature brethren. "'You're as much a bird as me,' said Harriet. She began backing toward the door, overwhelmed and wary of the gigantic clown in the making. "'It's no good trying to fool me now,' screamed Hornbaum. The children and puppies and clowns began flowing directly off his brush and pouring toward her. "'I see the birds. I see you. They're everywhere.' It's only me. I am all alone. Only me and my children to save me. I see the birds. There's one bird you haven't spotted, said Harriet. She elbowed the puppies away from the shopping bag and drew out bird camera. One sheet of her stationery, cut to size by de Bronck, was left in the tray. She jostled the clowns between her and Hornbaum, trying to clear an unobstructed view. The giant clown lay sprawled at her feet, embryonic, yet already struggling to its feet. Flash. The collage that emerged showed Hornbaum with a beak. Good enough. Harriet charged into the mass of clowns and children and puppies and held the paper out to Hornbaum. Take it! Look! Her body dripped with oil paint. The giant clown seized her legs. Hornbaum snatched the paper away from her. He dropped his brush. The clowns and puppies and children all held where they stood, yipping and sniffling and chortling in melancholy voices. Hornbaum seemed to fade, his certainty gone. 
The paper he held grew larger, extended easel legs to the floor, wooden ruler arms outward, and a long easel neck upward. The neck was topped with a small round bird's head with a comb like a rooster's. Finally, said the easel bird. It shook itself with a clatter, then stepped over and kicked the giant clown away from Harriet's legs. How do you do? My name is Lop-Lop. Harriet Welsh, said Harriet. Very good choice, mademoiselle, to turn the camera on my poor son. Thank you. The voice that issued from the little red bird's head atop the easel body was soft and mannered, with a slight German accent. Hornbaum stood, looking dumbfounded. Yes, Jonathan, you are my son. I am your father, though you never knew me. This is a wrong that must be righted, a bird that must be captured on canvas, so to speak. My father died in Germany, said Hornbaum softly. No, your adoptive father died there. Your true father, Max Ernst, left your mother never knowing she was pregnant with you. He, I, moved often and quickly in that regard. Regrettable, perhaps. Max lived many years in France and America, never knowing he had this son. But I, Lop-Lop, came to know of your existence, your emigration to America, your, uh, career. Ernst or Lop-Lop, which are you? asked Harriet. Ah, Ernst was Lop-Lop, his secret identity, his bird self, both horrible and wise. But when Ernst died, I, Lop-Lop, lived on. Why didn't you come forward sooner? This is a rare freedom I enjoy now. When it is over, I shall go back to the margins, trapped in museum depictions, flourishing occasionally in the seams between things, like the other sons, but unable to speak aloud. I did what I could. I tried to direct his hand. The altered paintings, said Harriet. Yes, I added a glimpse of the bird to his soporific canvases. But the birds, whispered Hornbaum, the terrible birds. Yes, we are all terrible birds, said Lop-Lop. I was the bird when I treated your mother so badly during that terrible time when all of Germany seemed endlessly birds. But I painted what I saw. You have spent your life running from the bird, and so the bird is never named, never mastered. Lop-Lop turned to Harriet. My son had a powerful surrealist magic in him. Despite his never knowing his heritage, it knew itself in him. But he put it to very poor use. Jonathan is a reverse Icarus. His father equipped him with wings, but rather than fly too near the sun, he never left the ground. He scowled at the puppies and clowns and children, who were now beginning to scurry and melt back into the canvases that lined the walls of the studio. Lop-Lop took bird camera out of Harriet's hands. <laughs> My little toy. Jonathan won't need it now. You must return it to its place in the museum. He stilted over and put it into the shopping bag, then looked at a watch on his wooden wrist. Hurry home now. You have to free your friend from the television. Sesame Street will be over in a few minutes. What about the sons of the bird? asked Harriet. I'll see to that. Breton is a scoutmaster at heart, always checking and revoking memberships, slapping wrists and handing out medals. You mustn't take it too seriously. He looked back at Hornbaum, who stood hapless in the midst of his canvases, his eyes nearly as large as those he ceaselessly depicted. Please leave us, said Lop-Lop. I have many apologies to make as a father. He paused, scowling. And my son has equally many to make as a painter. Ah. 
11. Their house is not exactly in the city, but the city can be seen from the nearby promenade. It's a part of Brooklyn Heights where it's possible to live in brownstones very much as lovely as Hornbaum's without living anywhere near Hornbaum himself. Her success as an expert in museum and auction security, due in large part to her celebrated rescue of Max Ernst's bird camera, permits her to run the agency at a remove. He still teaches, but not because he has to. There is not a single television in the entire house. Jonathan Lethem is the author of Dissident Gardens and eight other novels. His fiction and essays have been translated into over 30 languages. He lives in Los Angeles and Maine. The insipid profession of Jonathan Hornbaum is narrated by Tatiana Gomberg, a New York City-based actress and audiobook narrator. She has performed off and off-off Broadway, as well as regionally and internationally. Her work in The Night of Nosferatu garnered her an NYIT Award nomination for Best Featured Actress, and her portrayal of a drone pilot in Hummingbirds earned her a Best Actress nomination through the Planet Connections Awards. She also played the leads in two seasons of classics at Theater 1010 and toured the United States with Theater Works USA. You can hear her narration work on audible.com and numerous podcasts, www.tatianagomberg.com. Matteo Pendergrast, the voice of Jonathan Hornbaum, born 2047, birthplace, New York, New York, height, six foot five, weight, 200 pounds, likes slash hobbies, reading, bikes, going for walks, swimming, friendship, family time, Eugene O'Neill, Canoe, PS2, including more than 100 games. Michael Taylor, the voice of Richard DeBronck, is undeniably the greatest man in the world. He enjoys games, puzzles, and experiencing interactive theater to improve on the subtle, intricate, yet uniquely brilliant greatness of Michael Taylor's mind. C.C. James is the founder of Singularity & Co., an independent bookstore and publishing house in Brooklyn, New York, dedicated to bringing vintage science fiction and other genre pulp Back to the Future. C.C. James is also an anthropologist of fan culture, as well as an avid cosplayer and notable New York City nightlife personality. Find C.C. James on Twitter at at C.C. James and at Singularity Co. Wilson Fowler, the voice of Lop Lop, has been getting more and more into voice work ever since 2008, when he narrated his first story for Podcastle. If you're in the Vancouver, Canada area, or even if you just love a good fun show chorus, check out the Maple Leaf Singers, the group Wilson directs. You can find them at their own website, www.mapleleafsingers.com, or their Facebook page, facebook.com slash 
Maple Leaf Singers. Josiah Woodson is a composer and Grammy Award-winning musician who has worked with the Oakland East Bay Symphony, the Maconda Project, and the Superpower Horns, as well as artists such as Branford Marcellus, Clarence Clemens, Most Def, and Beyonce Knowles. Woodson holds a Bachelor's in Music from the Oberlin Conservatory and a Master's in Music from the New England Conservatory of Music, and is annoyed when people confuse impulse power with sublight drive. He lives in Paris, France. So, let me get this straight. Spelling Bound's dead? That's right. And Don Fairweather Jenkins tried to get rid of you too? Yes. And you escaped through the story and showed up on my doorstep? Exactly. Well, you know what this means, don't you? I... What? You led her right here, you moron! James, wait! Now, now, get out! Right now! Every minute you stay here, she's closer to getting me and I refuse to get choked on again! Oh, Mr. Sexton. Ah! You can see for yourself that ship has sailed. How did you get in here? I should have thought that was obvious. I teleported. Oh no, that would mean... That's right, Overstreet. A privilege reserved for senior crypto administrators. While you fools were busy scheming... I wasn't scheming! I found the source for the stories drifting in and out of our reality. I mean, when would I even have Say time to Say goodbye to assistant crypto provost oh, Don Fairweather Jenkins. Uh, goodbye. She's been promoted, you fool. She's won! Oh, so that means she can mess with you, like, directly. So very, very directly. Yeah, I'm not seeing a downside here on my end. And that's why I've decided not to kill you, Overpass. Oh, this is the worst day of my life. Now, now, I'm sure the worst days of your life are still ahead of you. Shall we say next season? So, you guys are still in my house. Oh, yeah. oh, oh well, sorry. Know, you know, sorry. I, I, sorry. You know, it's getting late. I, I, you know. I, I got a dinner to go oh, to. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess appreciate I should it. probably. Thank you. Thank you. Finally. Well, where was I? Oh, yeah. That's right. A strawberry daiquiri. James! Oh, Christ! James, you are never going to believe No, I... no, sorry, no. But, but, but James, ow! Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Our sound engineers are Atticus Ryan Garten, Alicia Barrett, and Matt Mazzarella. Your hosts are Tanya Ireland McLean as Dawn Fairweather Jenkins, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Special thanks go out to Marcy Arlen. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. Go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and for links to all our contributors. Yeah.